Merry Christmas, everyone. Well, I do have the honor and privilege to be preaching the Christmas sermon to you. And uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the Gospel of John. John chapter 1. We will be focusing on verse 14, but I want to read verses 1 to 18 in John's prologue to his Gospel. And may God bless the reading of his word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light. So that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Will you bow with me in a word of prayer? Gracious Father, who from the womb of the Virgin Mary brought new life to all humanity, grant to us your Holy Spirit, that by hearing your word, we might receive it by faith and be born again, born to be your sons and daughters for eternity. Reveal to us your word, your incarnate word, that we might behold your glory. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. No room, no room, no room were the disgraceful words of the innkeeper in Bethlehem. Sadly, these are the very words that describe our very present condition in our world today as we celebrate Christmas. No room, no room, no room. What happens every year around this time is the busyness of all the festivities of Christmas, where people make no room for Jesus. It's right after Thanksgiving that, you know, we we get ready for Christmas. We see it coming and we anticipate this Christmas season. We get ready for it. And tragically, most people miss it. But you ask, how is it that people miss Christmas? It's almost impossible to miss Christmas. I mean, you can just hear, hear it all around you, can't you? You can hear it in the stores and the malls. We heard it at Starbucks today. Radio stations that are dedicated to playing Christmas music. And of course, you see it all around you. You see it in Christmas movies, Christmas cards, Christmas gifts, all of these things. How is it that people miss Christmas? 
Well, it's when we replace the reason for celebrating Christmas with all of the traditions and the hype and the hysteria of Christmas. Christmas today has become a fabricated holiday, driven by advertisement, drowned out by the media, surrounded by the myths and fables of Santa Claus. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not the Grinch that stole Christmas, all right? I love the excitement and the buzz around Christmas. I I even have a Christmas tree in my house. I'm not against those things. And I love receiving Christmas gifts. The problem arises, however, when we begin to define such things as the substance of Christmas itself. The problem is when we get so caught up in the celebration that we forget why we are celebrating, or more importantly, whom we are celebrating. The tragic problem is we miss Christmas. It happens every year. Do you realize that most people miss the first Christmas? They miss the miraculous birth of the Savior. They miss the one who would die for the sinful race. The innkeeper was one example of the one who missed the first Christmas. Not only that, he was one of the ones who were closest to witness the first Christmas. I mean, can you imagine having front row seats to the birth of Jesus Christ? Can you imagine having Jesus, the Son of God, born in your own hotel? Yet the innkeeper missed Christmas. Why? Because he was busy. He was busy with business, busy with doing things. And it could have happened to any of us because we are all very busy in our lives. We live in such a frenetic pace, stressful commutes, pressure-filled jobs. And add to that pressure, the Christmas season, where we get so busy with shopping and Christmas parties and thinking of gifts, gifts to get for one another. Can I ask you, are you busy? So busy that you have no time to ponder upon the one who has come to give you life and eternal life. Is this Christmas any different from the others? Have you been so distracted with doing things, things that are not necessarily bad, but things that demand your attention from worshiping the king who has come? I don't want you to miss Christmas this year. And by that, I don't mean a date on our calendar that will pass by you, but a person who has power to radically change your life. I don't want you to miss the person of Jesus Christ, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, Emmanuel, God with us. So allow me to take you back to the beginning of the story of Christmas. I know the beginning was not 2,000 years ago in a stable, nor is even even long before the nativity scene in the Old Testament when the prophet Isaiah said, for to us a child is born. The beginning of the story cannot be traced in terms of human history, but far back to the mysteries of eternity. If you look at verse 1 of John, this passage takes us farther back than any other verse in all of the Bible. Back beyond Exodus. Back beyond Abraham, back beyond creation, eons before there was space, time, matter, sound waves, light, darkness, day and night, way back beyond all of that. In fact, the opening words of John reads, in the beginning. Now, the article, the, does not appear in the original Greek. Literally, it's a beginning. There is no beginning point. This is before anything. John is not talking about a particular time. This is even before time was created. 
a timeless eternity. Let me try my best to try to escort you, uh, escort you to this timeless eternity. This was before any matter or any laws that were related to matter. Long before any of that. The immensity of that is limitless in space. Absolute, perfect tranquility. No struggle between good and evil. It is the domain of the divine. It is an existence without any need. There is nothing lacking. There is a complete absence of anything we call struggle. And we have only begun to scratch an inch of the whole ocean of what this means. Next, we read, in the beginning was the word. It is unmistakable that the word is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the son of God, as John would later identify in verse 14 as the only son from the father. Now, what is meant by the word? The word is the Greek word logos, which means the same as our word, W-O-R-D. We know that a word is an audible or visual expression of a thought. Thoughts are incommunicable until they are put into words. Several times the scriptures ask, who has known the mind of the Lord? The answer is no one. No one knows the mind of God until he reveals it to us in his words. You know, we sometimes ask, who, know what, who knows what he or who knows what she is thinking? And we simply don't know until they express it in words. And when I, when I speak to you in words, I'm trying to convey to you the thoughts and the feelings that are in my mind. That's what John means here. Jesus then is the expressions of what is going on in the mind of God. In Jesus, the thoughts of God are revealed. He was God's utterance on earth, unveiling to us what Paul calls that secret and hidden wisdom of God. In short, the word is the divine self-expression of God. It's the supreme revelation. In the beginning was the word. Way back into eternity was Jesus. Now that verb was is very interesting. The imperfect tense of the verb was describes a continuing action in the past, which tells us that Jesus was continuously in existence before the beginning. But what's even more interesting and important is that John intentionally chose to use the verb was instead of became. Now, had John used the word became to describe Jesus, he would have implied that Jesus came into existence with the rest of creation. But by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John chose the word very carefully to stress the fact that the word always existed. He is the pre-existent one. In other words, Jesus was already in existence when everything that exists came into existence. Wrap your minds around that one. In the beginning, when everything was created, the word already was. He is not a created being. He existed before anything that now exists, exists. And this word John tells us was with God. The word was with God. This the English translation does not bring out the full richness of that little preposition with. That phrase is more profound and means far more simply than the word was with God. It pictures two personal beings facing one another, face to face in intimate fellowship. In that preposition he uses of being close, John further explains in verse 
18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained them. What a picture that is of the intimacy and the fellowship of the eternal Son and the eternal Father, where the Son always gazes into the Father's eyes and the Father always gazes back into the Son's eyes. They are perfectly in love and fellowship through eternity past. The Trinity basks in reciprocal fellowship. And again, our minds stagger as we think of Jesus in this perfect, joyous intimacy with the Father without beginning and without end. And it is beyond the grasp for us what the relationship between the infinite Father and the infinite Son had. And if John, as if John had not made it already clear that Jesus was fully God, he says at the end of verse 1, and the word was God. And that's the first thing John wants us to understand about the meaning of Christmas, that Jesus was God. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses and Unitarians deny this great truth that Jesus was God. They want to say that Jesus was a God, a small little G, not capital G. But there is no other translation of the statement possible without violating the laws of Greek grammar and all the other verses in the Bible. Jesus is God and the word was God. This means, friends, that everything that can be said about God the Father can be said about God the Son. In Jesus dwells all wisdom and glory and power and love and holiness and justice and goodness and truth of the Father. Show us the Father, asked Philip, disciple of Jesus. Jesus' staggering response, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that in Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the perfect representation of the Father, an exact photograph, if you will, of God the Father. In Jesus, God the Father is known. He was God in every way, yet separate from God the Father. And this really is the mystery of the Trinity, isn't it? That Jesus is both with God and is God. And we simply lack words to describe where the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit formed the Godhead co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent. Furthermore, John tells us that Jesus is the creator of the universe. Look at verse 3. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. That means Jesus was not made. He is not part of creation in any way. Rather, all things came in through him. And so John introduces us to Jesus as God. Now, after John talks about how Jesus created the world in verse 3, that all things were made through him, we come to the absolute shock in this story in verse 14. I just want you to feel the shock of this. So let me read verse 1 for you again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now look at verse 14. And the Word became flesh. 
in five simple words. John states the most profound mystery of human thought. Now, don't let these words just brush past you. Don't allow this to become just some afterthought. The word who was in the beginning, the word who was with God, the word who was God, this word became human flesh. That eternal word, that marvelous articulation of the mind and thought of God, that word that brought all things into existence, became a soft baby flesh. Oh, what a shocking descent this is. How could this be that Jesus, who is God, would take the form of a man? How can God cross the infinite gulf separating what is God and what is not God? It is a staggering thought that God became flesh, that the one born in Bethlehem in a manger was God. Think of it, beloved. Your creator stepped into the world he created and became part of his creation. That is a staggering ministry, uh, mystery. Verse 10 tells us that he was in the world and the world was made through him. He is in the world, a small, tiny, little infant, perhaps no longer than 18 inches long. And he made the world. It takes your breath away. And it is here that J.I. Packer writes, and the thing that happened at the first Christmas, that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie, the word became flesh. But there is one thing that we can know for sure. When Jesus came into the world, and when the word became flesh among us, deity did not change into humanity. When the word was made flesh, His deity did not suffer. Before his incarnation, Jesus was absolute deity. And after his incarnation, he was just as much deity as before. His deity did not suffer anything when he became flesh. And it's not as if Jesus became fully human and then laid aside any of his divine attributes. Rather, Jesus took on the fullness of humanity while remaining fully God. He added manhood, but he did not subtract deity. He was fully God, and he was fully man, the God-man. And as R.C. Sproul puts it, every attribute that would define the second person of the Trinity before Bethlehem was there after Bethlehem in the deity of Jesus. You know, to see the nature of God, we naturally look to the heavens. Christmas tells us to look down in a manger. There you will find that baby boy given for you who is your creator lying in a manger. Ponder that for a moment. The almighty power of God moved in a human arm. The love of God now beat in a human heart. The wisdom of God now spoke from human lips. The compassion of God now pierced in his human eyes. The mercy of God reached from human hands. Jesus was God, now with human skin. That God would do that. That God would join himself to a creature. That God would stoop so low to be identified with us. Who can fathom that? We cannot explain it. We cannot fully understand it. We can only affirm it. 
When the word became flesh, God took on humanity. The infinite became finite. Eternity entered time. The invisible became visible. The creator entered his creation. We cannot add to Charles Wesley's perfect expression of it. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. There it is. Paul says, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. So we've established that Jesus is God. And as God, Jesus became flesh. And this shocking descent begs a most obvious and important question in order for us not to miss the message of Christmas. Why in heaven's name would he be willing to be born? Why would Jesus leave his father's throne above and stoop down below to be born in a feeding trough? The answer is love. Love inexpressible, love indescribable, unadulterated, unpolluted, pure love. For John tells us later, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It was love that compelled Jesus, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, perhaps an illustration would help at this point. And though all human illustrations would fail to grasp the extent of the love of Christ, let me go at it. Let's, let's suppose that I owned an ant farm. I've never owned one before, but let's just say I did. And for reasons that are only known to myself, I love those ants more than anything in the world. How could I communicate my love to them? I could shout, I love you. But I speak English and they speak ant and they wouldn't understand. I could write them a letter, but they couldn't read it. I could shrink down to an ant size, but they wouldn't recognize me. But if I had supernatural powers, there is one thing I can do. I could take the form of an ant. I could be born as an ant. I can live as an ant, and I can communicate as they do. Then I could find a way to say, I love you. And this is what God did. He didn't mail a letter or shout from heaven. He did the one thing that we could understand. God himself came down and entered the human race. He became just like us so that forever we would be hearing, saying, I love you. Uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, known to history as the honey-flowing doctor of the 12th century, adoringly called this event the kiss of God. For here the word, or the mouth of God, comes to meet us in love. The Apostle John writes later in his letter, we know love by this, that Jesus laid down his life for us. God didn't simply send his son into the world to say, I love you. But according to Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is love that Jesus laid down his life for us. Now, we will not appreciate the beauty and the generosity of God's love if we leave out the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that God became flesh. Why? 
Because firstly, we are human. Now, we don't always appreciate the meaning of this point as we should, but here is the problem. It is man who has fallen. It is man who has become sinful. It is man who is in disgrace. It is man who has tainted its image as the image bearer of God. It is the human race itself that fell in man. And if we had a really reality check of our world today, the world is not getting better and better because of our technological advances. Rather, the world is getting worse and worse because of the immorality of man. The reason for the state of the world and all the problems in our lives today is what is in man, and that is sin. That is why it is absolutely essential that whoever comes to restore humanity must be a man. Jesus took on flesh and blood. And when the word became flesh, don't shortchange that statement from John. When, when Jesus became flesh, that means he became flesh all the way. He not only became fully human, but he experienced all that we have also experienced as a human being. In becoming flesh, he was born in helplessness and weakness, just as we were. He was tiny and he was frail and needed to be cared and fed just as we did. He grew in wisdom and stature just as we do. He felt hunger and pain and sorrow and weariness just as we also feel. He even had to use the bathroom just as we need to. He experienced the anguish of temptation in all the same ways just as we experience it. He partook of death just as one day we must. And he rose from the dead just as in him we will. The writer of Hebrews says it like this. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Since you and I are flesh and blood, because we are human, Jesus must be identified with us and share in flesh and blood in order to heal us of our sins. So the word became flesh. And the writer of Hebrews continues as he emphasizes he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus did not merely resemble humanity in some qualities of human nature, but it tells us in every respect. In all things, he became like us. And the only exception, of course, is that he was without sin. We need someone to represent us, to save us, to be the head of a new humanity, and he must be a man. And because our old representation was tainted as a result of Adam's sin, we needed a new representation. We needed God to become man. But of course, I cannot stop there. You see, secondly, our representative had to be God. He had to be divine. If Jesus had been man only, then when he died on the cross merely as a man, it would have not have saved us. Because the guilt and the weight of our sins would have crushed him. Listen, one sin is enough before God's holy judgment to be deserving of 
eternal hell. Now, I know that is a hard pill for some of us to swallow, but it is true. Because we have sinned against an infinite God, we deserve infinite judgment. And the only way to pay our debt is if the person paying for our sins is of infinite value. If Jesus was just a man, all of our sins and burdens would have killed him and destroyed him. But he was of infinite value. He was God as well as man. That is the meaning of Christmas. He was at once God and man, the word made flesh. The prince of the Puritans, John Owen, said that it was only as the God-man that the Lord Jesus had room enough in his breast to receive and power enough in his spirit to bear all the wrath that was prepared for us. Oh, do you see? Since all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus, and since he received the spirit without measure, when Jesus went to the cross to bear the judgment of God on our behalf, it could not exhaust him. It could not destroy him. In fact, it's only because Jesus is the God-man that death could not hold him. Listen to how Jesus speaks himself of this. Turn to John chapter 10, verse 17. John 10, verse 17. These are the own words of Jesus. He says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. No man can ever talk like that. Who speaks like that? What human being can say to death, I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again? What person can look into the face of death and say, you don't have power over me? I have power over you. I will go through you and see you on the other side. Only Jesus can say that because he is the only begotten from God the Father. And it is only Jesus who speaks this. It's not only Jesus who speaks this way, but his disciples do as well. Having seen Jesus conquer death from the grave, the apostle Peter preaches in a sermon in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But Peter doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, but God raised him up from the, get, from the dead, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. It is impossible for Jesus to be held in the power of death because as Peter cites from Psalm 16, he says that Jesus is the Holy One who will not allow himself to undergo decay. It is because Jesus is the Holy One, because he is God as well as man, he can lay down his life for us and rise triumphantly from the grave. Again, if Jesus was merely a perfect man, bearing the sins of the world would have annihilated him. But Jesus is the Word made flesh. And he came to bear the sins of the world as the only qualified one. And when he shed his blood on the cross, 
Three days later, he rose from the grave. And so the apostle Paul can write to the Corinthians, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Joy to the world. The Lord has come and he has come to rescue sinners from the wrath of God. He has come to suffer on your behalf. He has come to give you eternal life. And it was love that we did not deserve that moved Jesus to come. Consider, friends, that God did not have to send his son into the world. It was not necessary for God the Son to become flesh. There was nothing lacking in him, no need unfulfilled. He didn't have to save sinners like us. But because God loved us and he wanted a people for himself, it was necessary for him to be made like us in every way so that he can stand as our substitute and make atonement for our sins. This is the whole rationale of the incarnation and the glorious meaning of Christmas. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And only in recognition of this great condescension of grace do we learn the love of God for us. B.B. Warfield, the great Princetonian, summarizes the message of Christmas like this. Its entire motive was one of grace. Human sin was its occasion, and human redemption was its goal. And this is the linchpin of the gospel. The glorious Son of God stooped to become all that we are in order to bring us rescue. Have you missed Christmas this year? Have you been too busy? To recognize this, too busy to ponder the message of Christmas. Did you get caught up with all of the distractions that kept your eye from beholding the glory of Jesus Christ? When John says in verse 14, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is only the privilege of the believer, only the believer can see and behold his glory. Because when we consider our terrible condition, when we consider how we have marred the image of God by our sins and how we are only deserving of eternal death, when we look above and see him there who made an end of all our sins, we can see and taste his glory, the glory of a matchless grace, glory of a fathomless love. This is your great privilege, Christian. Not just today on Christmas service, but tomorrow and every day after. Behold his glory. We have received grace upon grace. That means, beloved, there is an ocean full of grace of God's love and blessing in the Lord Jesus Christ. But, you know, even as we rejoice over such glorious things, there is a tragic reality that there are some here who have missed Christmas all of their life. And it's not busyness that made you miss Christmas. No, it's the blackness of your sins that has darkened your eyes to behold the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. When you look at Jesus, you don't see glory. You look at him and he seems boring. 
restrictive, unreal, a chore. And you don't see his glory because you haven't believed in him. My friend, God has come down to you. Will you not come to God? Would you receive him in your life today? Would you receive the greatest gift that you will receive on Christmas? The gift of the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. The gift of God himself. Listen to verse 13. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The word became flesh is a powerful message of Christmas. It opens the door to the glories of Calvary. It is a very foundation of the gospel. It reveals the amazing love of God. The late Emil Bruner preached a memorable sermon based on the phrase faith, hope, and love. And the points were these. Every man has a past, a present, and a future. Every man has a problem in his past, a problem in his present, and a problem in his future. The problem in our past is sin. But God has an answer to that problem. The answer is faith. Faith in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The problem in our future is death. But God has an answer to that problem also. The answer to that problem is hope. Hope in Christ's return based on the fact of his historical resurrection and promises. The problem in our present is hate. And God's answer to that problem is love. It is the love of Christ lived out in the lives of those who trust him. Bruner was entirely right. And he was right not only in highlighting the three great problems of man. He was right in pointing to Christ as the answer. And it's only because the word became flesh that we have the answer to life. Don't miss Christmas this year. Let's pray together. Our God and Savior to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O oh, love of God, how rich and how pure. That you would send your only son to become flesh, so that he would rescue rebels like us. How undeserving we are. Yet we have received grace upon grace. Thank you, Father, for revealing your amazing love in your Son, Jesus Christ. And, oh God, if there are some here who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, give them grace to turn from their sins and to believe in him. And enable us to grow deeper in our fellowship with you through Christ our Lord and to behold your glory. Amen.